0: emergency services please you gotta help me there's this weird guy ma'am please
1: ma'am call us when you're dead
2: what the fuck
1: welcome back callers to another episode of
2: call us when you're dead i'm keith and i'm ryan And on today's episode, we are going to be covering the co-ed killer. Or,
1: as some of you may know him, the Michigan Murders.
2: The Michigan Murderer.
1: Yeah, this is our last episode of Murder on Campus. Woo! Wrapping up another season. I know, I can't believe we're finally here. And then, with it being spook season, we are finally getting into The Devil Made Me Do It.
2: Yeah, season four, Devil Made Me Do It.
1: Yep, which was going to entail, you guys... 10 cases that are where somebody claimed I was demonically possessed or I heard the voice of the devil be able... And, and they committed a crime off of it.
2: Yeah, definitely looking forward to doing some of those cases. Like, I know some of the big ones, but mm-hmm. those, those little ones that we like to do. Right, right. And
1: there will be cases where sometimes a crime was committed because they thought the other person... Was possessed and death
2: entailed. Right, it'll be it'll be exciting. Looking, definitely looking forward to season four.
1: I am too,
2: especially because we are in that you know
1: we're in that time of the year where it's the leaves are changing, the ghosts are roaming, and the demons may actually be out. <laughs> so, are you going to ask me anything new? Well, what's new with you?
2: Well, remember, oh uh, boy, last season I believe I we gave. Updates on our our listenership and how we were like in the top 20 percentile of true crime podcasts. Yes. Well, I didn't tell you this yet. Uh Uh-oh. But I got an email today. Okay. That said, in some countries, we are in the top 175 top true crime podcasts. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is awesome. Awesome. And that definitely could not have been done without our callers. Yeah, so thank you
1: guys so much for being callers. We, we really are starting to take off more and more. And we're, we're going to be starting some campaigns here in the near future for, like, outreach stuff, of, like, getting our names out there more, which really is more possible with you guys you know giving those five stars and just sharing with your friends but we ourselves are going to be doing a little bit more so you might actually start seeing more like facebook ads from us or things like that so more people know who we are
2: yeah but with that being said let's do those shout outs yes i love me
1: some shout outs so we have tammy n angela h and mark s thank you guys for being our listeners Now, we normally don't do this at the very top of an episode, but due to the nature of the crimes that we were going to be discussing this time, viewer discretion is very much advised. Okay, so now all of that is out of the way. Ryan, can you get us started on The Co-Ed Killer? Because I grew up knowing about this person.
2: Definitely, definitely. And and we certainly do have a thrilling case for you today.
1: I don't know if we would call it thrilling. I mean... (laughs) It's terrifying. It
2: is terrifying.
1: But that's thrilling to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it it, scared, it was enough for you yesterday that you wanted to take a break from it, and that's not you. Right. Ever. I mean...
2: Yeah, it, there, there's a lot of disturbing stuff in this case.
1: Yeah. I think the only other case that you ever had a problem with was Rodney in Season 1, the ending, when you looked at the photos of that, and the same thing happened with this one. Yeah. So I'm noticing a theme. It seems like every other year, <laughs> so is next... Every other year, every other season seems to be like an issue. Are we going to be good for next (laughs) season, and then the one after that's going to be pretty, pretty horrible? So, so next season will be good. Okay, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Oh, that might be worse. (laughs) The devil made me do it. Those are probably going to be bad.
2: More than likely, yeah. But we are actually going to be covering two different universities: Eastern Michigan University and the University of Michigan. And I've been on the campus of at least one of them. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. And it seems. Fitting, considering we are Michiganders ourselves. We are. Plus, Keith's grandma, who was a U of M student at the time of these killings, was kind enough to give us a little interview on college life during that time.
1: Yeah, so, grandma came up on her birthday, well, a few days before her birthday, and did an interview with us, which is a story that I was told growing up. Well, as I got older, she finally told me about it.
2: Right. She didn't give you nightmares as a child saying, hey, let me tell you about these murders. Oh, good night. The night light died.
1: (laughs) Oh, God, that would have been horrible. (laughs) No, she would have never done that to me. My mom, maybe. Not my grandma. My mom would have laughed.
2: (laughs) She Um, would, too.
1: So, yeah, I I grew up knowing about uh, the person we're going to be talking about. And I got to interview her for it. She was kind of reluctant. So she did it. And I'm so, so happy and so proud of her for doing it. It kind of seemed like a weight off of her a little bit to be able to talk about it. And then over the last few days, she's called me and said, well, I should have said this or I should have said that. But we're very, very happy with what she said and how she said it.
2: Right. I definitely agree with that. I I listened to the interview beforehand because the interview was pre-recorded and I'm very happy with how it turned out and grandma should be proud.
1: Right, I'm very proud of her. And then, like I said, I... Used to go to the university. I I didn't go to the University of Michigan, but I used to go to the campus all the time and walked around. And you know, because there's clubs up there, so I used to go there on Friday nights. And this is so I know a lot of the places that they're talking about, or I've seen the areas that we are going to be talking about.
2: Ooh, that has to add a little.
1: It does add a little bit of a creepy factor to it. Yeah, you know. And even so, when I would go up there after I was told the story, I used to always have like that bit of a fear factor, I guess, of, oh my god, I know what happened here.
2: For sure, for sure. All right, so before we dive into the case, let's get those fun facts out of the way since we've been doing it the whole season so far.
1: Yeah, I've really actually enjoyed the fun facts.
2: Right, and since we have two different universities, we're gonna do two sets of them. Oh, okay, yeah, I mean, why not? Right, so let's begin with Eastern Michigan University. We are familiar with
1: squirrels being Everywhere by us. Like the one that knocks on my goddamn door.
2: Exactly. He's like, give me that food.
1: Yeah, he's an asshole. We may have even talked about them on the show before about how they get into our bird feeder. At Eastern Michigan, squirrels become famous. In fact, they even have a Twitter account, at EMU Squirrel, which is supposedly ran by one of the little critters at Eastern. Well, that's pretty impressive. Can we get one? Can we get a Twitter for, like, the sugar gliders? (laughs) At Emma Cullis when you're dead. (laughs) That would be adorable.
2: Yeah, but then it's going to be a sad day when they have more friends and followers than us.
1: Oh, I mean, but they are really cute. If you could. Oh, God, they would be fun.
2: (laughs) Eastern Michigan University was also ranked as one of the best business schools by the Princeton Review in 2014. Business, management and marketing are the most popular majors there.
1: That actually does make sense for that college. I, I, I'll i
2: take your word on it. I just thought it was notable that they made it into the Princeton Review. It seems prestigious. Mm-hmm. Some notable alumni include actor Jeff Daniels, who starred
1: with Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber.
2: That's a funny movie.
1: You know, I can actually hands down tell you I've never seen that one.
2: Oh, my. I've never gosh. seen either
1: one of them. If, uh, if we ever
2: get divorced, I'm citing that as a partial clause. Don't... You know what? <laughs>
1: if we get divorced, you don't get to walk away. <laughs> I told you, till death do we part. Yeah. Well,
2: on my tombstone, just make sure it says Ryan saw a dumb and dumber. Oh, okay. Uh, and John Harvey Kellogg, who was the director of
1: the Battle Creek Sanatorium, and he contributed to the invention of the cornflake cereal, in which his brother, William, is the founder of the Kellogg Company.
2: I'm sure many Michiganders and many people across the world are familiar with Kellogg cereal.
1: I'm sure they are, but the Kellogg family does not have the best of past.
2: No, they do not, but they do have cornflakes.
1: They do have cornflakes, which isn't that the whole thing of like, it would stop you masturbating.
2: I believe that was mentioned somewhere from uh, John Harvey Kellogg.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Cornflakes make you not want to
1: (laughs) masturbate because you just don't have any saliva afterwards.
2: Yeah, I have no idea. All right, enough on Univer- or Eastern Michigan. Let, let's cover some fun facts of the University of Michigan.
1: Well, yeah, because we all know that they're the better ones. Everybody yells, go blue, oh, while we're God. at breakfast in the morning. True story. I'm sorry, Erie. I know she's going to be so mad because she went to state. <laughs> the University of Michigan was founded in 1817. But its first university level course wasn't held there until eighteen thirty seven. You waited twenty damn years to hold you, you're a college, but you ain't <laughs> holding no classes for Apparently, twenty years. Unless those kids were held back a lot. A, a lot, a lot. What were you doing, <laughs> Michigan? Yeah you know what? Actually, I think I might know what was going on. So I think at this time is when the debate between where the college should be held was going on between Ann Arbor and where I grew up. We talked about this before. Jackson got the prison and Ann Arbor ended up getting the college. Oh,
2: okay. Well, that makes sense. A good possibility. And
1: originally, Jackson was supposed to get the college, and Ann Arbor was supposed to get the prison. And so I think this is the debate that started to happen at that time of who was going to get what.
2: I mean, it makes sense. It took the government 20 years to figure it out. Right between the cities and the
1: government. I think that, yeah, that does kind of add up.
2: University of Michigan's football stadium, also known as The Big House, is the largest stadium in the United States. In fact, if it was filled to capacity, it would be the seventh largest city in Michigan.
1: And let me tell you, you do not want to be there when there's a game going
2: on. Probably especially during the rivalry.
1: Right, yeah. I made that mistake one time. Went downtown, thought it would be fun, didn't know because I'm not big into sports, that the Michigan-Michigan State game was going on. Oh, God. I got gridlocked into traffic for, like, five hours.
2: For, like, five years. Yeah, and I (laughs) left
1: before. Like, the moment I found out that the game was going on, I was like, I'm getting out of here now. Run! Yeah, and we couldn't get out. Five hours in traffic oh, of just God. sitting there, and people are so angry the whole time, especially if because at this point, people know like their team is lost or it's won. I was like, if they start rioting, I'm <laughs> going to start crying. I, I believe that. The University of Michigan has the most insane notable alumni list. It even has its own Wikipedia page. Some of those alumni include Theodore Kaczynski, a.k.a. The Unabomber, you guys. Dr. Jack Kevorkian, who was the assisted suicide doctor, James Earl Jones, who was the voice of Darth Vader, and of course, seven-time Super Bowl champion, Tom Brady. Now, that is a wide range of alumni. Right. So, you have two murderers, you have an actor... And you have a football player,
2: so the sky's the limit. You can go in whatever direction you want. Right. Clearly, you University
1: <laughs> of Michigan believes you can be whatever you want to be. <laughs>
2: Just please, callers, don't Maybe go don't there and be like, like two of them. I want to be a serial killer. Don't do that. That's bad. Right.
1: Just a little heads up. We are going to be doing a little bit of a different format this episode. Yet in the end, you'll still get the facts and the information on this case. However, we are going to be jumping right into the victims themselves and the crime scene.
2: Also, our suspect was implicated in up to 15 different murders. However, we are covering only the first seven as outlined in the Michigan Murderer Novel. So brace yourselves because we are dealing with a fucked up piece of shit today. Yeah, he is. With all that being said, let's get this show on the road and hop into our trusty time machine and head to Eastern Michigan University in the summer of 1967.
1: Please keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the time machine at all times. Call us when your dad cannot be held responsible for any lost limbs. This is where we are going to be meeting our first victim. Her name was Mary Flasier. She was a 19-year-old who majored in accounting at Eastern Michigan University. She was last seen going for a walk on July 9, 1967. Sadly, her body was found a month later. Nude, face down, one forearm and hand were missing. The fingers, on the other hand, were cut off as well. Both feet had been removed from above the ankle. Along with the savage butchery of her body, there was also approximately 30 stab wounds to her chest. Detectives noticed that the body had actually been moved at least three different times. However, they couldn't be certain if it was a killer or an animal making the move. What the detectives could tell was, Mary was killed somewhere else, and it placed there.
2: So, yeah, we're just definitely getting right into
1: that. Yeah, okay, so I, I want to make sure that I read this correctly, and we're going to reiterate it. She has, her forearm is gone on one side, and fingers are missing on the other, correct? And she has been stabbed. Correct and when they find her she is face down. Correct. Okay.
2: And what the I guess I'm I'm assuming because of the blood pooling um, or the lack of blood pooling is what made them realize that she's been moved. Correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, especially
1: because when there's been stab wounds things like that and the blood pools it leaves like the bruising. And so if she had been moved at all, it would show like on her chest. Because it talked about she'd been stabbed in the chest. It's going to show that the bruising is different on her chest itself.
2: For sure, for sure. And another thing, the the 30 stab wounds to the chest themselves. Right. That definitely does indicate, I feel, crime of passion because...
1: I would think of a crime of passion.
2: An, a knife attack alone is so intimate.
1: Right, but one to the face is even more intimate. You have to at least know that person.
2: Right, right. Almost a year later to the day... July 5th, 1968, another body was found. This is believed to be the second victim. She was 20-year-old Joan Shell. She was found on the side of an Ann Arbor road by some construction workers. The terrible awful was done to her. She was then stabbed 25 times. Her throat had also been slashed, and her mini skirt was tied around her neck. Another disturbing detail about this victim was the body's condition. Joan had been dead for several days, yet her lower body was in preserved condition compared to her waist up, which was in in advanced states of decomp. Once again, with the lack of blood at the scene under the body, it is highly suggested that Joan was killed elsewhere and then moved to that location.
1: Okay, I have to ask you this. Yeah. Do you think there's a bit of necrophilia going on?
2: I honestly believe that there is.
1: Or do you think that, I, I'm, I'm going to pose two questions. One, do you think there was necrophilia? Or two, do you think maybe she was left, her upper part was left somewhere that was more of like, ai I don't want to say dry climate because that sounds weird. But, <laughs>
2: uh,
1: where she would be more exposed to sunlight, I guess, is a better way to put it. Yeah. And the lower half was kept somewhere where it was darker to slow decomp. I guess that's my question yeah, that I'm posing yeah. to you.
2: Uh, I honestly believe there is more than likely necro going on. But yeah, at the same time, it's kind of strange to wrap my head around how the, the lower body wasn't so preserved and the upper body was in advanced states of decomp. It's not like you can just prop a body up against the wall and have a nasty tan line because it's still in the overall environment. Right. They, they made it seem like it was like night and day differences with the one was like saran wrapped and put in a freezer and the other was thrown in a sauna. So
1: because I know who the murderer is, I think this just proves even more that this person did it. Yeah. Because they would have the knowledge on how to preserve a body.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: uh, Very good point. The third victim was Jane Mixer. She was 23 year old freshman law student at the university of Michigan she was supposedly meeting up with a guy to get a ride home on March 20th, 1968. However, she was found the next day in a cemetery. Jane was shot twice in the head with a twenty two caliber gun. Again, it was clear that she was killed somewhere else and then placed in the cemetery. Stockings were twisted around her neck. What was different in a standout of Jane's death compared to the first two was the fact that she was still clothed.
2: I feel another standout is that she was shot. Yeah. Compared to our first two victims so far that were stabbed.
1: Right. And typically when you have something that's as brutal as what has happened to the first two, you're not going to change that.
2: Right. So I felt this one was a little little standout and uh, different. Mm-hmm. And what did you find out? Well, in 2005, I believe, it turned out with the advancement of DNA technology that Jane Mixer was not one of the Michigan murderers' actual victims. Right. But due to the crimes going on in, in the short amount of time, it was easier to say she was part of it.
1: Right. And then in, what was it, 2017, they finally caught the
2: person? No, it was uh, two thousand the 2005 or the 2007.
1: Oh, okay. They, they did finally catch the actual person. But we are adding Jane Mixer to this list because had these other two crimes not happened... This person would not have been able to commit this crime in the fashion that he did, trying to almost be a copycat killer to the Michigan murderer. Correct. And so it's only fair to keep her as part of the Michigan murders.
2: Our fourth victim was not a university student, but is still a victim of this piece of shit and deserves a voice just like all the others. Yep. She was 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton. On March 25th, 1968, her mutilated body was discovered behind an abandoned warehouse. Now callers, brace herself for this one. Investigators called this crime the worst thing they have seen in 30 years of police work. The following description was taken directly from the Michigan Murders wiki page. It describes the attack as, quote, Her killer had placed
1: a section of her own shirt into her trachea to muffle her screams." as she received extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, and body, including several deep lacerations believed to have been inflicted with a leather strap. welt marks upon the chest and shoulders indicated the killer had also used restraints to hold the victim prone as he whipped her torso and upper legs with a leather belt before tearing a branch from a nearby tree and inserting this instrument eight inches into her vagina. Blood spattering and churned soil close to the crime scene indicated she had been beaten close to where her body was discovered, and that she may have attempted to escape her attacker.
2: End quote. The autopsy stated that Marilyn had died from the several skull fractures that had been inflicted by a blunt, heavy object.
1: So, I want everybody to understand, being held prone is being held down. The first time that I it over this, because I've read this quote a few times, I wanted to make sure that I got it right. I had to look up what prone was because I didn't understand it at first. The killer is essentially holding her down and then beating her until she's dead. Yes, I mean, I guess that's the well, that's, best way to that's put it.
2: the most best and upfront way to put it.
1: Yeah, I remember when you, this is the one that you asked me to keep like looking over because you just didn't know how else to put this one because
2: it's just that bad. Right. There is.
1: And and I guess the best way is he held her down and he beat her to death.
2: Right. Uh, Along with torturing her. Torture.
1: Yeah. Tortured and beat to death is the best way to put that.
2: Yep. Again, our
1: fifth victim was not a university student, but still deserves a voice. She was not a university student because she was 13 years old. Dawn Bosom. She was an 8th grader and the youngest victim. She was leaving from a friend's house, which was by Eastern Michigan University. Dawn was found on a deserted road in Ypsilanti. Her blouse and bra were pushed up around her neck. Dawn had multiple stabs and slash wounds on her body, including her breast, stomach, buttocks, and genitals. Yet Dawn's cause of death was the strangulation from a two foot electrical cord around her neck. There was also a handkerchief stuffed in her mouth, which was believed to be placed there to muffle her cries during her torture. Can we not talk about this one? I just want to move on. Yeah. Thank you.
2: The sixth victim was a University of Michigan graduate in the fine arts and was enrolled in grad school. She was 23 year old Alice comb. Her body was found partially nude near an abandoned farmhouse by three teenagers. Alice was shot once point blank in the forehead. She was also stabbed multiple times, of which two of those punctured her heart. The terrible awful was done to her as well. However, the medical examiner was unable to determine if that had happened before or after Alice was killed. Once again, due to the evidence investigators were able to determine that Alice was killed elsewhere and moved to the location near the farmhouse. So, now...
1: There is a gun being used.
2: Yeah, there's a gunshot wound and a stab. Right, and you and I talked
1: about this yesterday. I believe truly that he used a gun this time because he wants to take credit for the third victim in the full knowing that he is not the one that killed her.
2: Ooh, yeah. That's a that's a very good point.
1: Because if there is another gun being used, you know, if another victim is shot, then it looks like, oh, I can kind of do, you know, changes here and there. But, you know, as we found out later on through DNA, she wasn't an actual victim, but he is changing his MO Right to take almost possession over somebody that, you know, fuck him.
2: Right, yeah,
1: yeah. If that makes sense to I I guess I don't understand. I don't know. uh, Not that I don't understand. I don't know another way of putting it.
2: No, that's... that's...
1: Outside of he's trying to take uh, ownership for a crime that he didn't commit. Because to him, this is a way of having control. For sure, for sure. Over women.
2: So can you just imagine though, uh being one of those three teenagers, you know, three three teenage guys just hanging out playing in the abandoned farmhouse. And you find it about it. And then you find a very uh disturbing, I guess. Uh a dead body, yeah. So okay,
1: I uh my half brother, Matthew, he uh used to live on Blue Island, and one time he found somebody who had been it was a female, she had been beat with a sledgehammer, and he found her.
2: Oh God, I never knew that story.
1: Yep, and so he's he's never gotten over it. It's always kind of just bothered him his whole life
2: because I can she was that. still
1: alive. Oh geez. So, and the cops questioned him. They had to take him in at one point. They thought maybe he was involved with this. Uh, you know, because you see a body. So I'm sure that these three kids essentially are very scared because they found something, and now they're telling people you know they're telling the cops we just found this right right and i'm not trying to discourage people from ever telling the truth or ever going out but as three men you are going to be the first suspect oh
2: for sure for sure
1: you know so i i'm sure that they were shitting themselves
2: yeah
1: our last victim is 18 year old eastern michigan university freshman karen sue Beeman, whose body was found face down near the huron river nude and excessively beaten Again, there was extensive skull and brain injuries from being hit with a blunt, heavy object to the face. Some of her skin was removed from her body as well in some areas. The medical examiner also determined that her neck, shoulders, breast, and nipples were burned off using some sort of chemical. Karen was also forced to drink the substance as well. Similar to a couple of other victims, a piece of Karen's clothes was stuffed in her mouth, assuming to muffle the screaming. It was also determined that the terrible awful was done to Karen before she was murdered, and her panties were forcefully put into her vagina. Once removed, it revealed the presence of semen and a short little blonde hair clipping. Again, Karen was also killed somewhere else and brought to the Huron River Ravine afterwards. We know that there was a lot of graphic words and imagery, but we wanted to give you the facts of what this monster did. With that being said, and as we mentioned earlier... I was able to get a little interview with my grandmother, who was at the University of Michigan as a student at the time. She lived life on campus where female students were showing up dead and brutalized around eastern Michigan and the University of Michigan. So let's take a listen. So we are now here with my grandma, who I am going to be asking some questions to because she actually lived on the campus of Michigan University at the time and we are going to talk about some of her experiences, what she went through, how she felt at that time. So, Grandma, can you tell me what year did you start going to the University of Michigan?
0: It was the fall of 1967.
1: What was your, were you were you going there to like major anything? Was there anything, like what was your reason, I guess, for going to the University of Michigan?
0: Um, well, I actually had um, a scholarship to go there and um didn't realize at the time that i was one of the few fortunate ones to be accepted just thought anybody could be accepted um but i was in the pre med program okay
1: and you later on in your life as i think we've talked about here on the podcast you would go work for the hospital but in their computer lab right
0: right, right?
1: so we are going to go back to the fall of 1967 because that's when you would have started college correct? yep 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 okay What was it like starting off at the University of Michigan?
0: Um, Well, it was culture shock. Because I came from a rural high school that graduated 110, and my freshman class was over 3,000, so that was kind of culture shock. Um, But there were a lot of other things going on at the same time. There were demonstrations because of the war in Vietnam. That was happening on a regular basis. Sometimes we would be in a big lecture hall with 3,000 kids, and the professor would stop right in the middle of the lecture because. Um, And would come all of the demonstrators, you know, about Vietnam and everything. It was a bad, bad time at that time. Also, there were bomb threats in one of my buildings where um, I had my math classes at. And uh, at least once a week, but sometimes three times a week, there would be a bomb threat and we would have to walk down three flights of stairs all in an orderly but quick fashion to get out. It was just terrifying.
1: So you would say that there was just general, at that time, chaos.
0: Chaos and and frightening things. And then on top of it, (laughs) uh, we were all told in my dorm that uh, there had been some kids that had been killed right down at the bottom of the hill from where my dorm was. You went out my dorm and across the street, and now there's a parking lot. But before, there was no parking lot there. It was just a big field, and it would go down to the Huron River. Um, and some kids from the dorm were just down there walking and they were found murdered. And so we found out that there was a killer on the loose. It was it, terrible.
1: <laughs> and what was the name of the dorm that you had?
0: You know, I don't even remember the name of the dorm. I'd have to go back and research. At that time, there was only one dorm on campus that was co-ed. That was not my dorm. That was the dorm next to me. So in my, in my dorm, it was all girls.
1: Okay. So you may not I, I know that you don't always listen to each case that we do because because you and I just kind of talk about it. But did you know that there is a law that was put into place to help protect students against things that actually were kind of going on?
0: No, I didn't know that.
1: Okay, as some of you may not have remembered, but the Clery Act was actually put into place in 1990. I thought that it was put in place earlier. However, this act was put into place... To require colleges and universities to disclose their security policies, keep a public crime log, publish an annual crime report, and provide timely warning to students and campus employees about a crime posing an immediate or ongoing threat to students and campus employees. The law also ensures basic rights for victims of campus sexual assault and requires the U.S. Department of Education to collect and disseminate campus crime statistics. Do you feel, Grandma, after hearing that? Do you feel like that had that act that was put into place in 1990, mm-hmm. had it been put into place during your time on campus, do you feel like that would have helped helped relieve any bit of stress or worry that you had while you were there?
0: I don't know that it would have helped with the worry or the stress, but it would have helped for the fact of everyone knowing that the university would have had a policy that they would have tried to put in place. Now, keep in mind, they did encourage everybody to do the buddy routine and always walk with somebody, but keep in mind, this man, this killer... Um, didn't care if you were walking by yourself or if you were a guy girl just out walking if he so wanted to get you he would get both of you he just didn't care but the university was real good about everything they had self-defense classes at the dorm that was right next to me so we could take advantage of those and they just encouraged everybody to stay together all the time however sometimes classes were such that you were all by yourself or with just one other person and it would be dark because obviously in the fall time, it gets dark early. And it was just extremely scary. There were no cell phones back then. I mean, I guess we could have had a walkie talkie, but there was nothing available to immediately have where we could connect with somebody if we needed help.
1: So I know now they have like phones on the campground, like on the campus ground, where if you pick it up and you will get connected with like campus security. When you went to college at the time, was there anything like that? Or was that not in existence yet?
0: I don't think there was anything like that.
1: Earlier, we had talked, you had talked about how where one of the bodies was found was right behind your dorm. hmm And you and I, when I was younger, we went to Ann Arbor. And I can remember you showing me... Yes. ...exactly where that is. And there's not any, like, placard up, anything that, like, in remembrance of that person. Do you feel... I guess to you, do you feel like that's wrong, that they're not putting anything up to remember that person that lost their life?
0: Well, it's been a long, long time, so I don't know. They're... I guess the the worthwhile thing of putting something up would be just in memorance, and then other people walking could stop and look at it and read about it, and then um, just understand that they need to be a little more circumspect and aware of their surroundings, and then maybe that would make it easier for them.
1: Yeah, when you found out who this person was, and <laughs> we'll, we'll just we'll just say it, he was douchebag John Norman Collins. That's yeah. who he was.
0: Never would, never would have thought that he was the Washtenaw County Sheriff's nephew. Never would have, never in a million years would have thought
1: that. That was my going to. That was yeah, going to be yeah. my question. Were you shocked? shocked. As to oh, who it absolutely,
0: was? absolutely. Yep. When
1: have you seen photos of him when he was younger?
0: Mm-mm, no, I haven't, and I know there's a book out, but I on purpose have not read it because this is traumatic
1: for you. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it.
0: Yes, I. I don't. I was there when it was going on. Now right. I didn't come in contact with him, but it didn't change the fear factor.
1: Did you know any of the victims that no. happened to pass away?
0: Nope, I didn't.
1: So while you were there, do you remember like what people were saying? Just kind of on campus at the time. What was there like a rumor mill going around? Was there just people being like, I think it might be this person? Were Were the other girls in your dorm just talking about, like, how scared they were? Or did everybody just kind of try to live as normal of a life as possible while being on campus?
0: Um, life was not normal. It, it was not normal. Everyone was scared. Um, there was no specific rumor mill about, well, I think it's this guy or that guy. And keep in mind with a serial killer, it's not, oh, he's not going to look like what you think. He's going to be the average guy that makes you feel comfortable, that it looks like he would be a friend and that you could walk with him and whatever. Right. So everybody was terrified because nobody knew who it might have been and there was no resolution.
1: Right. While you were on campus, did you ever personally carry a weapon with you?
0: We were told we could carry a knife, but I did not. You I did didn't not. have one. Got but you. we were told we could carry a knife.
1: Did you did you have like a personal person like in your dorm that you remember that like you and her were always like buddies together and like you guys stayed together? Or mm-hmm. did you just kind of just anybody and everybody just kind of picked and choose because of classes?
0: Because of classes. Everybody everybody was on a different Program right. and so everybody had a different way of going off. You just had to pick somebody that was going in the same direction and stay with that little group.
1: Right, because not everybody. I just guess I want to make sure this is clarified that not everybody that lived in the same dorm they were not all in the same program. Like just because no. you were in the same right. dorm doesn't mean right. you were in the same program. Right, right. You could be doing different programs. Right, right, but all live in the same dorm.
0: Right, and okay. and so you know, there's a lot of prerequisites to get into the medical program, and one of those obviously being um, mathematics is we would all head down to a building it was called the Freeze building and that's where our math classes were but it was like 3 or 4 blocks away from the central campus and so everybody just kind of huddled in a group and all rushed down there at the same time only to get there and get in your class and find out there was another bomb threat and you had to leave and there was this killer and you didn't know if you should go back to the dorm or what you should do so it was it was just chaos
1: with with that chaos that was ensuing, do you feel like that made it easier for him to be able to commit these crimes?
0: Oh, absolutely. Because there were so many other diversions. Yes. Okay. Yes. It made it really easy.
1: You just talked about how he was the sheriff's nephew. Do you think that also helped him commit these crimes? Because he was giving getting <laughs> insight into what was going on and like where... Because even though his uncle may not have been wanting to tell him anything, he may have just overheard right. something or... Right. You know, no, and we're not yeah. putting blame on his uncle because no. I don't think his uncle knew. I don't.
0: No, no blame you know. at all. And keep in mind, there's another university over there, too, that's Eastern Michigan. And so you had two right. universities within a few miles of one another. And so he could go back and forth between right, the Right, and
1: he, he does attack people at Eastern, Yes, just yep, so you yep, know. yep. I um, di- and
0: I did know that.
1: I want to say thank you for doing this. I, I told you that we wouldn't do a very long one, and I'm not <laughs> going to keep it much longer because I know this is very hard for you to kind of reminisce about and re-talk about, but I wanted our callers to hear your story and just how life was on campus and your opinion on it, because that truly does matter. You you are a victim in your own way, even though you weren't ever personally attacked by him. He did victimize you. He victimized everybody that was on that campus. Right. And we always, always, always hear Want everybody's voice to be heard if you're a victim and you just, you are a survivor, but you were a victim at the time.
0: Right. And if I could take away with just one thing that I've learned is not to walk in fear and not to have your life be directed by fear, but to always be aware and alert. Um, if you're inside someplace, always check around and just be aware of where there's an exit if you need one. If you're outside, just be aware of where there's another path or an exit if you need to get there
1: yeah that is always 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 a good point is to always have a plan B is always a good thing <laughs> to have you can always have a plan A, which is I'm going to go in and act very normal. Plan B is well what if I need to run and it's always good to have that plan B. so thank you again so much for interviewing with me and your birthday's coming up in a few days. so happy birthday now <laughs> and
0: thank you sweetie. love you love
1: you. We will get back now, guys, to the show with me and Ryan, but that is the interview with me and my grandma on her take of being on campus at the University of Michigan while the Michigan murders were happening.
0: Thank you.
2: All right, callers. Now that we finally got the name out there of this garbage person, and in case you missed it, he is 22-year-old Eastern Michigan University student, John Norman Collins. Before Bundy, before John Wayne Gacy, before Berkowitz, before Dahmer, and even before Gary Ridgway, there was this animal, John Norman Collins.
1: I would call him the boogeyman.
2: Boogeyman of the 90s.
1: Of the 90s. Of the 1900s. Yeah. 1900s. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, this name, you, you can't say it in my, like, family without, like, around my grandma without it causing, like, almost the hairs on the back of her neck. to Cringe, stand up. cringeworthy. Yeah, because he is her boogeyman in a way. Even as me and her did the interview together and I said his name, you could kind of see her, like, tense a little. And I think it's because she just doesn't hear that name a lot, but she knows who he is.
2: For sure, for sure.
1: You know, and that, I don't want to say that he's been like a shadow that's loomed in our family, but he has. Because he, you know, my grandma was never attacked by him. Thankfully. Thankfully. But he did victimize her and everybody else just out of fear. Yeah. And I, I think he enjoyed every bit of that.
2: You know, the the physical damages and scarring is just as bad as the emotional.
1: Right. And so, with that being said, Ryan,
2: how was he caught? Well, as as we heard from the interview, Colin's uncle, David Leake, was a sergeant or sheriff of the state police at the time. He and his family was on a vacation and had his nephew house sit and to feed their dog, you know, and watch over the property.
1: Upon returning from their family vacation, David and his wife not- noticed some strange things in their basement. There was various black paint marks on the floor. Items were also mo- missing, including washing powder, a black spray paint canister, and a bottle of ammonia. When David scraped up some of those black paint spots on the ground he uncovered what appeared to be human blood.
2: So, uh, going back to missing items, ammonia, I want to say that could probably cause uh, burns.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I want it to be known, too, because I don't know if you've talked about it. What gave it away was that David had just had his floor repainted, and he thought it was weird that there was this black spray paint on his newly painted floor. I mean, that would piss off a homeowner real quick, nephew or not. Right, and so that is when I think David starts to put into his mind, holy shit, it's my nephew.
2: Right, and as you just mentioned, he scraped up those paint spots and he uncovered what appeared to be you know, blood. Uh, he headed into work to notify the department of what he found, and his basement became the target of an intense forensic examination. During the exam, investigators also found several short little blonde hair clippings. Sound familiar? Sounds well familiar. Well, when questioned about it, David told police that his wife cuts their children's hair in the basement. I mean, that's a normal thing to me, I feel. Right. I mean, we
1: cut our hair here in the house. I'm Absolutely. sure if somebody came in, they would find a <laughs> clump of one of our hair. For sure. You know, because it's either gotten them to the couch or it's somewhere that, you know, it just hasn't gotten swept
2: up. Right, and she happened to cut the kid's hair right before the family went on their vacation. And this is also prior to David even knowing about the hairs found with Karen's body. These hairs did match the hairs that were found with Karen's body. The bloodstains were also discovered all over the basement as well. And two of the areas shared the same blood type as Karen. When
1: investigators questioned David's neighbors, one of them stated that they heard muffled female screaming coming from his house. These screams were heard the same day that Karen went missing. With all of this evidence, yet all of it's circumstantial, John Norman Collins was finally arrested. I guess what I really would like to talk about is that we started in 67, and now we are into the summer of 1969. So for two years, he has run almost a rampage. For sure. And, you know, like— almost like a triangle-like shape around the area between Ypsilanti, Eastern Michigan, and Ann Arbor. Could you imagine that fear? You know, and then, to add on top of it, he's not getting caught because of who his uncle is. And I'm not saying that his uncle defended him. He didn't.
2: No, I would definitely say his uncle did not defend him. I would almost say his uncle's the one who turned him in. Right, his uncle is the one that turned him in. But what I, I guess what I'm saying is, if it wasn't
1: for his uncle I don't think John Norman Collins would have been able to get away with it for as long because he was getting information from his uncle and acting like this, oh, I'm the best nephew type of thing. right? And he love, led this very, like, utterly, like, pure life where he was, like, the all-American boy. I've seen pictures of him. Yeah, yeah. He Typically, I'm not the one to be like, oh, they were attractive. He was attractive.
2: Yes, he was a good-looking man.
1: And if I was a female during that time... I may have found myself being attracted to him, and I'm not victim-blaming them. I'm not. Sometimes being attractive is what a serial killer will use to get their victim. And that, you know, it's scary.
2: Yeah, so callers, please just be stop, so stop being sexy. So pretty. Yeah, start uglifying yourself so we know. Well, no, I mean, oh, some of them that. have been <laughs> real,
1: real ugly, too. <laughs> but
2: I'm just saying, sometimes... Uh, callers, we- stop having faces
1: right just put your face upon my face no (laughs)
2: um
1: i'm just saying that always be aware of it doesn't matter if they're overly ugly or it doesn't matter if they're overly attractive Always just be aware of your surroundings. My grandma talked about that in the interview of just kind of being aware of what was going around. Because you don't ever know. Really, you don't.
2: Killers come in all shapes, sizes, and appearances.
1: Right. And even, I think even his uncle is almost surprised at the fact that he's been chasing this murderer for two years, and it's been under his nose the whole time. Could you imagine the guilt that you're now feeling? Right. You know, because they took they took John in. John did not come from, like, the best of homes. He was, like, thrown around a lot. There was some abuse in the past, but that really doesn't fucking matter because you are still in charge of your own actions in the end. For sure. But I think if there was any, like, acting out, David, his uncle, would have thought, oh, well, this is just him acting out because he's angry about his past. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. You know, and so they would have excused it. And so I guess to the callers, I want to say sometimes when there is acting out, do a little bit of investigating, even if you just think it's acting out to be acting out try to find what's underlying and what's really going on and sometimes it's nothing and then other times it's a serial killer who has a body count of 15 right you know yeah. I understand that we only covered the seven of them but those were the ones that they could directly link to him and the other ones were not as easily directly linked to him they just
2: I mean believe. Yeah.
1: You know, they believe that he did, and then I understand that one of them was not his victim, but at the time it was directly linked to him until later DNA testing was done. Right. All right, Ryan, why don't you get us into the trial?
2: So, we covered seven victims, and earlier we said that he was possibly connected to an additional eight murders. However, Collins is only being tried for one of them, Karen Sue Beemans. Now, I know you're expecting me to say that he went with the insanity plea or took a deal, And I don't have that for you today. Collins took this one head-on and went to court. On August 19, 1970, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to life. He has filed several appeals and various motions and has since been up for parole a few times. Thankfully, all were denied. He doesn't deserve parole. No, he does not. The other victims are strongly believed to be victims of Collins as well due to the modus operandi or the M.O. Mm -hmm. However, since he was only charged and convicted of murdering Karen, the others are technically unsolved and more than likely will go cold. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand
1: why he would even be up for parole. Why would you give that to him after a first degree murder? Because, (laughs) you know, like, dude, your evidence is all there. It's all over. Like, I don't understand how you think that, oh, I didn't do this, because I know that he is still claiming, I'm innocent. You're not innocent.
2: Yeah, I I agree. But, you know, when prisoners get sentenced to that quote, unquote, life term, normally means they're up for parole after a 20-year sentence. And most times they get denied. Right. However, before we wrap up, we also want to note that Collins is also
1: linked to another murder in California as well supposedly with even stronger evidence than what landed him in prison in the first place. Considering there is no statute of limitations on murder, if he does manage to get paroled, California will be waiting. You go get him,
2: California.
1: Right, I wonder if California's like waiting at that phone. (laughs) They're just waiting for Michigan to call. Yeah. Being like, so we let him out. And California being like, so before you let him walk out the door. (laughs) How about you put him into a van, and then you bring him over here, because we need to have a little chit-chat about the murder that he committed over here.
2: Yeah, so I guess in the early 1970s, after he he was convicted and in jail— California was trying to extradite him to them to, to trial him for this other murder. But his attorney was a crafty little motherfucker and somehow managed to keep getting pushed off, pushed off. And California was like, all right, we're not wasting no more resources on this because it takes time and money to, to do all this paperwork and bullshit. They're like, you know what? Fuck it. There's no statute. We'll, we'll wait. We'll, we'll wait. We, we got, got
1: our, <laughs> We ain't got nothing but time, buddy. We'll wait. California ain't going nowhere. Right. And California, I wanna say, has the death penalty. So if he does get paroled, he's looking at death over there.
2: Can, can, can you imagine doing so many years and then being paroled? Just just to know that you're you're not really paroled. You're gonna you, go get a death penalty somewhere else. <laughs> you're gonna go get a death penalty somewhere else.
1: Listen, of all of the people that deserve it, this motherfucker definitely does. True story.
2: But in, in the bright side, I guess, he was put in jail in 1970 and he was up for parole after 20 years, which would be 1990. And we are in 2022. And I don't know how many pearls he gets from 1990 to 2022, but considering they're all denied, I bet you he's staying there.
1: Oh, I'm sure he will stay there for the rest of his life, and he deserves to stay there for the rest of his life. Absolutely. So, there you guys have it. These are the Michigan murders Season finale. Season finale. This was, this is a lot. I, I feel like I say that a lot at every season finale, but this one... Uh,
2: well, if you say it every time at the season finale, that's a lot. That means we did our damn job. Right.
1: I, I think it's because this has such a personal connection to my family and been something that I've known about since, I, like I said earlier, I've known about this since I was young. And it's always been one of those things that we know about it, but we just don't really talk about it. You know, every family has its secrets, and I I wouldn't call this a secret, but it's definitely (laughs) not like one of those, hey, let's talk about that time. It's not like it's a John Norman Collins secret. Right. You know, I'm sure that his family, you know, I'm sure his aunt and uncle are like, yeah, we're never talking about him. (laughs) ever. Once he's gone, he's gone. I have some questions for you, though. Do you think that he committed the other eight crimes, or do you think that they were just similar in the way— That they have, like, a strong connection, but there wasn't enough there.
2: Uh, So, during my research, a lot of, like, the eyewitness reports always stated that the uh, female would be getting into a vehicle where there was multiple guys. And the driver was normally identified as Collins,
1: Got you. Do you think he worked alone or do you think that he had a group of people that he was working with?
2: I think he had a group. And especially for the one that's uh, related to the California, he went to California with a friend.
1: Got you. So you think there may be somebody that's walking free?
2: I think there's a couple people walking free and and uh, this guy's taken the rep for them all.
1: Well, thank you for adding into that nightmare fuel for me. There's <laughs> people walking
2: free. I guess my thing is is
1: like you would think that even after he took the rap that that killing would have continued then
2: right that that's you know that's on the flip side of it because ever since uh he was arrested the these killings had stopped, but at the same time to re flip it over those those mystery partners could have been like, Oh shit,
1: we'll get caught if we keep doing he, it. He
2: finally got caught. Do we really want to push our luck right? I mean. So that's a bunch of back-forth. I could see it either way. But just because there is just a few tweaks in the, the M.O. on these murders... Right. ...makes me think that it's not necessarily all the exact same person doing it.
1: Right. And I am happy that they went back and they used DNA evidence to solve the actual murder of Victim 3. For sure. You know, because we do know now that she was not one of Collins's actual victims. However she was victimized because Collins was going around murdering people, and it made it very easy for somebody else to do the same thing.
2: Right, And those other ones, like I I said earlier, are technically considered unsolved.
1: Right. Now, okay, so my question to you is, do you think it's because there was just a lack of evidence?
2: Yep, yeah, because of the lack of evidence. You can't say criminal M.O. as a a thing to put someone behind bars or pin it on to someone else. Right, and I
1: don't want to say that Karen's murder was sloppy, but it is almost in a sloppy like he's doing it almost sloppy yep
2: he got more confident
1: right and maybe he was running out of time because he knew that his uncle and aunt were going to be coming home soon yeah yeah you know and so he just didn't have the time to do what he would normally do with the bodies prior and so because of that he's going to get caught which is wonderful i'm so happy he got caught true story But, but it goes to show that Even if you think you're the smartest person in the room, there's going to be somebody that's smarter than you.
2: Always, always.
1: So I know that we talked a lot about sexual assault on this episode. So we will be giving you guys the number for the National Sexual Assault Hotline. It is 800-656-4673 or 800-656-HOPE. If you or anybody that you know has ever been a victim of sexual assault, please call us hotline, and they will get you connected with professionals in your area to be able to give you help. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen.
2: Hey, and give us those five stars. Yeah, we love getting five stars. Right. And, and clearly, we have had several people doing it since we are in the top 175 true podcasts. Yeah. Also, don't forget to follow us on the socials,
1: facebook.com slash Follow us on TikTok at Call Us when Dead, where you can see some fun videos of us, or better yet, Jacaras the Sugar Gliders, Emma and Regina, or of course, our fur babies, Lola and Bailey. Or
2: you can email us at CallUsDead at Yahoo.com to tell us what you thought about the case, ask some questions, suggest some cases or season ideas, you know, or you can just say hi. But until then, remember to stay strong, do everything with love,
0: know that there's always hope.
1: And if you forget you can always call, call us when, when you're, you're dead.
2: dead. Was kind enough was kind enough to give us a litter? A litter? Yep. You got a litter? Oh, it needs a fucking blooper reel so there you know. go litter. Yep.
1: It definitely needs a blooper reel for like <laughs> this. We are Oh my gosh, I just screwed that up yep that's a blooper there you go okay was shot twice in the day with a caliber believed to be that that my grandma had you know what well, you, you guys will hear i guess is the best way to put this <laughs>